The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that results from listening to this podcast. This is the Scream Kings Podcast. I'm Nathaniel Darkish. And this is Max George. We plan on retracing the famed 1967 Patterson-Gimlin podcast in our search for Bigfoot. Bigfoot, everybody! It's been far too long. Why haven't we covered Bigfoot? Uh, that is a fantastic question. I don't have a good answer for that. I feel like this is going to rival our Mothman episode. I know you and I just completely nerded out all over that episode because we are huge fans of Mothman. And this, I, I feel like, I love Bigfoot, and people are going to get tired of hearing me talk here, <laughs> Nathaniel. Well, thankfully, you're bringing a lot of uh, knowledge to the, the table here. So, um, I guess to, to help kind of set the stage for this episode... Uh, what we're going to be looking at today is Patterson-Gimlin classic, you know, one minute or less, I don't know, it's, it's more like seven seconds film of Bigfoot, you know, walking across just this, like, creek bed uh, that, you know, is, is at least by many uh, people who have pursued Bigfoot or Sasquatch or whatever you want to call it. You know, this is, is definitely the kind of almost like holy grail footage of, of evidence for a lot of people. It is pretty widely held to be a hoax. So we wanted to talk about that today, and then also talk about a film that kind of takes that and, and runs with it in a kind of a fun found footage direction, which is uh, the film Willow Creek, which uh, we will get to a little bit later in the episode. Yeah, and uh, so let's kind of go into the occult corner first. We haven't done one of these in a while in our episodes, and I probably overprepared my notes for this section just because I love I love the Bigfoot story. I love most cryptid stories um, because I am a zoologist by training. My degree is in zoology and neuroscience. But before I dive too deep into that, I do want to give everyone a disclaimer. My boyfriend is outside the room right now playing the new Resident Evil 8, and if you hear screams coming out through the distance, it's just him. <laughs> It might add it might add to the ambiance. Yeah, and, and no one can fault him for playing Resident Evil 8, because I mean that's what I want to be doing right now. <laughs> yeah, we are definitely gonna be doing an episode. Um we had a ton of fun with the horror board games and we have to do a horror video games because we are just such huge gamers, Nathaniel. Yes, yeah, I, I briefly talked a, a little bit about Seven when we talked about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I, I reined myself in because I could honestly talk about that game for hours. So we can do a lot. Yes, yeah. Let, let's let's save that for later, though, because otherwise I will just start rambling and popping <laughs> in the mouth. And well, let me ramble all about Bigfoot and biology. Then, how about that? Yes. <laughs> all right. So to dive into the Bigfoot lore, really, the idea of Bigfoot is a fairly modern term, if I recall correctly. Uh, we, as Americans, started calling the Sasquatch Bigfoot around the 50s. 
And I want to be clear tonight that we could spend probably two hours on all of the variations that Bigfoot entails. You have Bigfoot, you have Sasquatch, you have the Yeti, the Abominable Snowman. This is a myth that is pretty pervasive in a lot of cultures. Yeah, and you know, even if, if it's not like directly this creature, there's also a lot of other yeah, similar things too, you know, like you mentioned with Yetis, but there's also like the skunk ape. There's all sorts of stuff that The that, Wendigo, even skinwalkers to some regard. Yeah, and so needless to say, this is a topic that we want to revisit in the future because it's so big, it's so complex. But but yeah, so that's that's why we are specifically gonna be focusing in on the Patterson uh Gimlin uh footage today, which I, I believe is actually kind of where where they started using the term Bigfoot was this particular film. You know, it's actually earlier when I was doing some kind of preliminary research. The Bigfoot craze kind of started in the 50s and moved into the 60s. And before we kind of get into that, because that has a lot to do with why this film in particular is pretty clearly a hoax, let's kind of set the stage for this film. So it was filmed in 1967 on October 20th. Um, it was in Northern California, a place called Bluff Creek. Um, and for several years, I mean, the film was captured in 1967. No one actually knew where it occurred until about 2011. A lot of the overgrowth kind of took over the area and people just could not find it. It's interesting that this film was shot by two Bigfoot enthusiasts. Patterson and Gimlin are kind of controversial characters in all of this, but they are, you know, the title heads of this film that has become an iconic symbol associated with the lore of Bigfoot. If you like Bigfoot in any sense of the word, you have seen this film. You know, I could verbalize it as this big hairy man, the camera's, you know, shaky, and then it looks up and Bigfoot looks behind you. The arms are very lanky and moving back and forth. There's that iconic turn to the camera. Yeah, it, and, and, and like, if, if if you haven't even seen the footage, you've definitely seen it parody. Exactly. Like the Simpsons does this. The freaking everything does this. Like, I have, I'm wearing a hat right now that has Bigfoot being abducted by aliens, and the pose he is in is inspired by this film. Like, when people draw and produce Bigfoot iconography, this is, this is, like you said, kind of the Bible of Bigfoot lore. Mm-hmm. So this... Movie was filmed. Patterson and Gimlin were very quick to get it produced and sent off, um, and it created just this explosion of cult culture. Um, it really took off. Patterson died of cancer in 1972, but always confirmed that this was an actual sighting. He never identified it as any sort of a hoax. Gimlin, however, was a little bit different. He actually stayed very silent about the entire experience. He did three interviews from 1967 until 2005. And then after 2005, he started showing up at kind of cryptid conventions here and there and explaining, you know, that he also um, never admitted that he participated in any sort of a hoax. And like I was saying a little bit earlier, because of this you know, quote-unquote sighting, really this kicked off the Bigfoot, Bigfoot paranoia to gigantic proportions. I mean, everyone started seeing Bigfoot after this, to the point where it has spawned numerous documentary series, movies, TV shows, and is one of the most hotly contested Bigfoot sightings, I think, out there by cryptozoologists. Um, it, it's the foundation for pretty much any Bigfoot lore. Now that we've kind of established a little bit of what this is, uh, at least like what the footage looks like, 
Could you tell us maybe a little bit more about the circumstances of, of maybe like what they claimed you know, was going on when they shot it? Because I mean, you know, uh, they're out in the middle of nowhere and suddenly they're filming. They, so obviously they had a camera. That's that's interesting. Sure. Um, and it's funny that you say that because earlier today I read a 50-page research paper that wasn't on like the sighting of Bigfoot about this film. It was about them like tampering with the camera. And it was pretty comical, you know. I, I work in the research industry, and so to read this very like scientific, technical piece of literature that was focused solely on Bigfoot camera work just made me chuckle. So, Nathaniel, where would you like me to kind of go first? Kind of the the production value of this movie and some of the concerns of why it's a hoax, or more of the biological, zoological reasons of why it's probably most likely 99.89% a hoax. <laughs> well... I, I kind of want to start maybe from a different angle altogether, which is so. So, what did they say? You know, they were. were oh, they were doing. You know, yeah. why, why? Why did they have a camera out in the middle of nowhere? Sure, I, I misunderstood your question there. So, Patterson himself, um, like I said, is kind of a, a problematic individual, and the reason I say that is he was a Bigfoot enthusiast for a very long time before this film was ever captured and there are numerous reports of him going to los angeles and cal other california sites that are very prominent in the film industry looking for film actors to be bigfoot and he went to a lot of costume shops and he you know he kind of wasn't very good at hiding that he was very intentional in creating some sort of mockumentary or documentary about the story of bigfoot or the story of sasquatch Things didn't pan out for him very well, and he met another enthusiast through these endeavors, Gimlin, and they decided to kind of go out into the wild and start filming, and supposedly, you know, they then capture Bigfoot after all of this legwork and preparation. So really, the core of your question, I think, is they were just two Bigfoot enthusiasts, one of whom who maybe had some ulterior motives originally that happened to find this cryptid just walking around. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of issues there that we can kind of dissect as we go along. So now give me a little bit more, yeah, about, you know, the evidence of the hoax and what, what's up with, you know, all this. You know, I, I'm, I'm just like looking at the, the image of the alleged Bigfoot. I didn't realize it was supposed to be uh, that, that they claim it's female and they named Correct. it Maddie. Yeah, and they also mentioned that it kind of gave him like this inquisitive and serious stern look as it looked back to them, I believe. Which hmm. just seems a little funny, because if this is a brand new species, how are you going to like classify their range of emotions in you know the seven seconds that they catch it on film? I think I want to tackle a little bit more of the biology aspects of this film first. And the reason why I want to do that is I took many an evolution class at Weber State University here in Utah. And not only evolution, but I took animal physiology and animal evolution, uh, a lot of these zoological classes that a lot of the professors thought it was kind of a fun intro to talk about cryptids or mythological beasts and why they're not scientifically sound. Um, and a lot of the times our professors would talk about Bigfoot. And if we classify Bigfoot as, you know, a homo sapiens type of a creature, that classifies him as a primate. Um, and in particular, a lot of the cryptozoids will, or cryptozoologists, classify him as a gigantopithecus, which is a, a very far-off ancestor, um, you know, Neanderthal kind of the era, this giant ape type of a creature. 
And a lot of my professors really brought up the problem of, okay, you know, we have this idea of Bigfoot, this unknown species. And there's a lot of issues with that. And first and foremost is because why would evolution favor a species like this, this giant ape that probably requires a lot of resources to survive? It would require habitation and sexual partners and, you know, a wealth of food. Why has this species over other species, other large carnivores like bears and wolves even, what makes this giant ape so successful in terms of its evolutionary design? And when you think about it like that, there's a real problem. Evolution favors benefits. You know, we, we always think of evolution as, oh, we came from monkeys. And while I, I do believe that, um, it favors traits in certain species that are beneficial to it, which help it live longer. So Bigfoot, yep. this giant ape, has to populate itself. It has to reproduce with other sexually compatible species. And there's just none in North America. A lot of people say Sasquatch's habitat is kind of the Pacific Northwest, kind of Northern California, Portland, Oregon, and into Canada. And there's nothing up there other than supposedly, you know, other Sasquatches that could reproduce with it. And another problem that comes out of that is there's no bone record at all. You think if we had a population that was big enough to reproduce and last as long as it has, we would see some biological evidence out there. And there's just there's zero, zero evidence. I, I feel like I'm giving a a science class instead of a horror podcast. <laughs> how, well, did, how did that sound, Nathaniel, to you? Uh, that sounded very good, that, that, that you, you brought forward some uh, very uh, worthwhile points. So that is kind of the crux of the Bigfoot phenomenon, that really this massive sort of cryptid is just really unreasonable. Um, biology doesn't work like that. It doesn't allow one species to live, you know, one individual of that species is going to live 500 years. Um, but <clears throat> that just doesn't happen. These Bigfoots would also be endotherms, so they're going to be affected by the different temperature deviations. Endotherm is just a very fancy term for warm-blooded creatures. If these big feet, Bigfoots, <laughs> are indeed primates, Again, there has to be some sort of habitation. There has to be some way that they'd be regulating their body temperatures. And in the Pacific Northwest, that's going to be pretty difficult. Lots of rain. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of this that goes into the Patterson and Gimlin situation. When scientists first saw this video, they just really scoffed. And up to this day, the research I did... No good-willed scientist takes this film as any sort of biological evidence of a, a new species. Um, and in particular, there are some two issues that the, the costume in the Patterson-Gimlin film has hairy breasts, and you, you don't see that in any other primate species. The breasts are always nude as it helps with feeding of the young. Uh, and then also it's lacking an, a sagittal crest, and this crest is kind of the top bone of a skull. And in primates, this is very, very small and hardly pronounced. But as you can plainly see in the Patterson and Gimlin film, the, this costume or this creature that they've captured has a very prominent sagittal crest, which is just, you know, all of the evolutionary science we have up till now kind of counteracts this situation. So that's kind of my super overhaul of, of the biology of it. 
and I'll talk to you a little bit about what I think about Bigfoot when we get to that section. But from my my training as a biologist and a zoologist, it's it's pretty hokey, honestly. Are there other elements uh, that that you kind of want to bring forward about about it being um, problematic uh, as well? Yeah. So. If you do a quick Google search, you're going to find a barrage of factual evidence and um, items that really point to this iconic film, this Bible of Bigfoot lore is just a hoax. And I I tried to summarize kind of the key points that I thought were most damning. And like I said earlier, I think a big concern of mine is Patterson was in the Bigfoot business before this film ever was created. Um, A few years prior to the film, there had been a lot of these prints that were found in the Pacific Northwest in Northern California that no one could identify, and these tufts of hair that no one could identify, and they were just shocked that, you know, maybe this Bigfoot lore is a little bit more substantial. And as I mentioned, Patterson went to California. He was looking for actors. He was looking for a film production crew. And then it just happened that when he went out with his, you know, very close friend to find Bigfoot, he finds a Bigfoot. What a crazy random happenstance. Uh, I've been looking for UFOs in the night sky ever since I was in kindergarten and uh, 31 years of it and nothing has happened. And so it's just incredibly incredulous that this Bigfoot enthusiast wanting to create a Bigfoot documentary just happens to find his Bigfoot. So right there, that's the first kind of item on my shelf before it comes crashing down. The second thing is both Patterson and Gimlin changed their story multiple times when they told individuals about it. You'd think that such an iconic moment and such a terrifying moment, Nathaniel, can you imagine just being out in the wild and then you see this eight foot, nine foot, hairy behemoth just walk by? You'd sh- I'm not gonna say that poop your pants <laughs> why we've, we've never been a family-friendly podcast before I, okay you shit your pants it would just be traumatizing and i don't understand how you know these two individuals you'd have two essentially witnesses of what happened would change their stories multiple times and you can get into the the psychology of memory patterning and and all of that but at the end of the day this should have been such a traumatic experience it would have been burned in their memories. And then also, you you yourself mentioned that they thought the creature was a female. Um, originally it was male, then it was female, and then it kind of changed again, and it was six feet when they first told it, and then it became eight or nine feet, and they added the, the emotional response from the creature, and it just kind of spiraled into a little bit of chaos. So again, that's kind of the second item on my shelf before it comes crashing down. What do you think, Nathaniel? Is all of that fairly suspicious already? Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, I, I think it's fair to, to to mention that, yeah, like, people's memory of anything does get hazy. Like, you know, memory is notoriously unreliable. But even still, you know, the the fact that, you know, they, they have it on film and they can't even keep their story straight. That, that you know, they have this evidence, but they keep reinterpreting the film and recontextualizing it and all that that to me makes it extra suspicious i don't know that there's a lot to to unpack honestly but but you know the there's just a lot of issues with the story there's a lot of you know it's just yeah i think to me the biggest thing is that it's 
when when things are too good to be true, it's usually because they are too good to be true. Literally. Yeah, yeah, and we're gonna get into that because at the end of the day, that's how biologists are gonna approach the situation. Before we go into there, I wanna kind of give you three more nails that are pretty. They're gonna nail the coffin shut here. You know how I mentioned earlier that there had been some people who discovered these very large footprints in the Pacific Northwest before this film was ever captured? Yes. Come to find out, um, there's an individual named Ray Wallace who wanted to make some money on this Bigfoot phenomena. And so he decided to to hoax these giant footprints, you know? Um, guess who interviewed him right before the film was shot? <laughs> Oh, weird. Uh, what, a, what a strange coincidence. Yeah, Patterson, there's records of him talking to this guy about where would Bigfoot be seen and where have people seen him and where did he find these footprints? And, you know, maybe Patterson had what, you know, a good interest and a good heart there. He was just genuinely curious. But if, but you... if his, if his uh, ace in the hole for evidence is based on a guy who later admitted that he made all that stuff up right right if a fraud is hanging out with another fraud like it's hard to deny that additionally in 2002 a costume company known as philip morris reported that they had a hand in helping patterson develop a bigfoot like costume back in california they shipped it to his home in 1967 in the spring right before this film was created um, and they have been sharing this information with a lot of crypto um, zoological conventions since like the 1980s. So uh, this was pretty damning for me. And then finally, kind of the last crack in the shelf here, um, is there's a, an individual named Bob Eronimus. Um, Hieronymus? I'm not quite sure how to say his last name. Hieronymus? Hieronymus, yeah, that's probably the best. You're the English major here. I don't know, I'm thinking Hieronymus Bosch. <laughs> uh, anyway, Bob claims to have been the figure depicted in the film. He said that he had not previously discussed this publicly because he was afraid that, you know, he knew this film was a fraud and it's created such a media blitz that if he spoke out and confessed that he would in somehow be liable, which seems like a pretty fine-tuned excuse to me. He said when he finally did speak out that his lawyer told him that since he had not been paid for the event, that he would be fine. So that's when he decided to speak up. So, yeah, I guess that that's pretty intense. I mean, if someone's claiming to be something in a fraudulent film like this, you can kind of take it with a grain of salt. But the real kicker is his family member and friends recall seeing him walking around in this costume, trying it on, practicing the iconic walk in mm. their homes. Um, and it's not just like one close family member. It's his parents, siblings, close friends, you know, by the mouth of many, you shall know them, essentially. And so it, it kind of starts to snowball into all of that hair that was found when the footprints were also found. DNA analysis shows that it's either deer hair, human hair, dog hair. There's no real unknown species. And at this point, you know, you kind of come down to the idea that it's Occam's razor. We're all familiar with Occam's razor, right? But the most simplest explanation 90% of the time is the correct answer. Mm -hmm. um, and especially in biology and science and physics, 
scientific logic really it really is not as conspiratorial as we want it to sound. You know, the earth is round. Vaccines work. Bigfoot probably doesn't exist. And this film itself is a hoax. I'm going to say it. And at the at the end of the day as well, when you have these giant claims of fame or authenticity, it's on the person who's making the claim to tr to prove it, you know? Um, everyone else on the sidelines, we have science to kind of objectively look at their claim. And if that science and logic shows that it's probably false, then it's not on us to believe it. Yeah, the, the burden of, of proof is on the person making the claims. Exactly, exactly. And everyone pretty much is, agrees here, unless you find some hardcore cryptozoologists. Um, and, and then you have to kind of take it with a grain of sand, because they're also going to believe in things like the Jersey Devil and the Chupacabra and these other cryptozoids that... I don't know, it, it, as a scientist myself, it, it's very hard to kind of back up the Bigfoot theory. I think it's fun. I think it is rooted in culture and mythology. But if we want to be frank about it, it's it's pretty hard to believe. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I, I mean, I do want to, to say, though, that, you know, inherently, like, if, if you do have a belief, you're not, you know, cuckoo bananas or something, you know, but I, I find it fun to believe. I find it interesting to believe. I, I find it, you know, worth studying and considering. And at the very least, it, you know, it makes for an interesting thought experiment. Yeah. Like, what, like, what, what would be the, the situation in which this could happen? And I, I think it, it allows people to kind of become more intimate with science of, okay, it, it's fun to believe in Bigfoot, but let's kind of take the situation and apply it to the rest of science and, and apply that scientific reasoning. Um, it makes for a great object lesson. And like you and me, we're occult enthusiasts. We love kind of the spookier, supernatural, paranormal stuff. And Bigfoot, of all other cryptids, is kind of the king. I mean, you have him and his bride, Loch Ness Monster. Um, so I, I did want to take a, a quick minute and kind of give people a little bit more, like if you are hardcore believing in B Bigfoot, I found a few recent kind of sightings that have a lot more weight to them than the Patterson-Gimlin film. And I've got four. The first one was in Marble Mountain Wilderness in California. This is Northern California. Um, this is the longest Bigfoot film ever shot. It's seven minutes. It's very grainy, but the thing that this individual captures is pretty unsettling. You can find the video on YouTube. It very well may be a human. Um, the, the image is very grainy, but when I watched it earlier today, and it kind of got under my skin a little bit just because it is pretty eerie. Um, and that might just be, you know, the quality of the film and, and thinking that this is Bigfoot. You know, I have some some bias there. The next two huge encounters that actually hold their own really well happened in Utah, Nathaniel, of all mm. places. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we usually associate this with the Pacific Northwest. I mean, yeah, I just went to uh, Oregon and, you know, you could buy uh, lots of t-shirts that say things like, Bigfoot stole my weed, I stole weed from Bigfoot, that kind of thing. Yeah, so Utah, like you mentioned, this is kind of one of the issues with... Uh, the Utah sightings is it's very rare to see a Bigfoot sighting this far south, but there have been two encounters since 2012 in Provo Canyon, which is just probably about 20, 25 minutes south of Salt Lake. It's a very grainy shot of a creature in October of all places. And when both of the videographers saw this creature, it kind of 
got very frustrated and started throwing large rocks at them. So it kind of attacked them. And there's actually a Kickstarter that was founded in 2012 to kind of get a paranormal group here in Utah to kind of go through the Provo Canyon and see if they could find what it was. The additional Utah sighting was down in St. George in 2008. So we were seniors in high school when this happened. Driver was going down the side of the road and then he saw these red glowing eyes staring at him and this monster kind of darted across the road. And it scared him so much that he actually spun out of the road and police officers had to come and get him out. The red eyes and the darting and, you know, a driver in St. George, which is a pretty, you know, not populated area if you're outside of the city. Uh, This could have been anything. The guy probably could have been drunk. Um, But there's just the evidence is not so ubiquitous that it's almost believable. Sometimes I think having less evidence makes things more believable, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, there's just, like, less to pick apart. Exactly, and in terms of, you know, cryptids, you know, if you have this huge fanciful story like Patterson and Gimlin, it's a lot easier and quicker to to tear down. Um, So something like the St. George sighting is so short that there's not a lot to to kind of say, oh, you just saw this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, in 2014, out in Virginia, this these photos are actually on YouTube as well. They're very clear, non-blurry iPhone pictures of a large creature near a riverbank that's hidden among brushes and trees, or bushes and trees, excuse me. And this one also kind of got under my skin because it is this large, furry, kind of humanoid-looking behemoth and you're not quite sure what you're looking at it could very well be a moose even though i don't believe in moose i've never seen one in person well you're lucky (laughs) yeah Uh, or it could be a bear you know it could be a lot of things but these pictures are pretty eerie i if anyone loves bigfoot i'd recommend definitely checking them out so Um, oh that's just cousin steve yeah harry henderson or whatever you know i know that's bigfoot Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So at the end of the day, I I think what it comes down to with cryptids, and I think we talked a little bit about this when we talked Mothman, is the same paradox applies as it does to extraterrestrials, um, which is the Fermi paradox, which essentially states that, you know, for aliens, there are so many planets out there. Space is so gigantic. um, We know so little of it that there is a high probability that they do exist. Um, And the same goes, I think, for a new species. As a biologist, I think it would be unscientific for me to say that Bigfoot cannot exist. I I don't think it's this giant, you know, prehistoric hairy primate. It could be, you know, an undiscovered species of bear or, uh, you know, Lord knows a whole new subset of species. Uh, There's so much land at the Pacific Northwest. I mean, Canada is huge. And who knows what's out there? And so I think it's rather unintelligent to say that it's not possible. But again, you have to apply Occam's razor here and say, you know, show me the evidence. And if the evidence is concise and authentic, then I will believe a little bit more. And that uh, that is the scientific theory at its heart. But with the caveat that if we have any Sasquatch or Bigfoot enthusiasts listening right now. Um, please prove me wrong. We would love to have you on the show. We would love to talk about your stories or what you've heard or what you've seen. I, I want to be proven wrong and I want to hear those stories because that would fascinate me and I'm sure it would you, Nathaniel. Yes, and uh, to, to use the uh, famous catchphrase from the X-Files, 
I want to believe. Yeah, like, and 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 this is also true of, of you know anyone who looks into other cryptids as well. Like, we love cryptids; we are fascinated by them, especially you know at, at the very least as, as a cultural folklore artifact. But you know, if if this is something that you actually pursue, that you investigate, that you go out into the woods and look for. Tell us your stories. Yeah, we we definitely want to hear it, and we promise to not be jerks about it. I know sometimes people, you know, invite these people on to make fun of them, and and no, we're we're sincerely saying like, hey, we want to know more. Um, you know, at the very least, just to to see, yeah, like what what techniques do you use? What do you you know what what motivates you? What you know, I I I want to know. And I think such a core of our podcast is exploring these themes and these ideas. Um, and listening to the stories of other people. My favorite episodes, Nathaniel, are when we have other experts on who, you know, your friend Rachel at the Nauvoo house, it's still to this day, I didn't experience that, but her her experience was so real and so terrifying that, you know, for a few minutes, it made me actually believe in, in the paranormal. And that is what I want to do as a podcaster here on Screen Kings is just hear from our listeners and hear your stories because that's where the true power and often where the true horror is. And I think there are certainly instances in, in many of our lives where we experience something that we can't explain. And so, of course, it makes sense to you know spend time and thought and effort trying to make sense of them or at least just looking at it and going, huh. So, yeah, like I, I've had things that have happened to me that I can't explain by any normal conventional things um and uh, i would love to hear what other people have experienced too you know almost without fail when when I, I have talked to people about the podcast or about cryptids or whatever people have have stories or they have you know like a friend of theirs that has seen things or what you know there's a lot of second and third hand uh, accounts that that i've heard but like I want to hear more. I, I, I find this absolutely fascinating. You know, this is the richness of the human experience. This is why folklore is interesting. This is why mythology is interesting. It's because at the end of the day, even if we can't rationally explain a lot of the things that we uh, have, that, that we've experienced or that we've heard about, it doesn't mean that um, we can't learn from it or be interested by it or anything like that. That's yeah, that's like the bread and butter of the horror world. Exactly. And with that being said, I did reach out to about fourteen different friends and some family members and just was curious about their thoughts and opinions about Bigfoot. Two of them said that absolutely a hundred percent yes, they believe in Bigfoot, and the lack of evidence obviously suggests that he exists. One of these individuals is a very huge um, extraterrestrial enthusiast who we've actually had on the podcast before, so she was quite excited about a chance to rave about Bigfoot. Um, I wonder who it could be. Yes. Uh, Three of them said they didn't know, and therefore it's possible. And then nine of them essentially said that seeing is believing, and unless science tells them so, they're not going to believe in it. They also mentioned that urban legends and fanciful stories and lack of cohesion should not be used as factual evidence. They're a little bit, I think, bitter, but they bring up good points, too, especially when it comes to scientific kind of supernatural occult lore like Bigfoot. You know, it's hard to mix science and the supernatural sometimes. And I I don't know if I'd even classify Bigfoot as supernatural. I know I've thrown that term around a few times now. Definitely unknown. 
I, I think maybe a, a little bit of bitterness might be fair in a time where people are looking at <laughs> hard scientific evidence and rejecting it as often as they are when it comes to things like vaccines and, you know. That is an exceptional point you make, Nathaniel. I think we're kind of going through a renaissance of this fake news versus real science, and it, it's kind of a heated topic for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunately something that never goes away. I mean, this is this has been true for, for many, many years, but you know, it's just it's it's upsetting to see how many people reject science when you can show them, you know, the the body of proof and they still just go, nah. So what do you so so gun to your head, do you think that Sasquatches exist somewhere in the world? Um, I'm gonna say no. Um, as a zoologist, though, I do want to point out again that um, I think it's unscientific to say that a creature that might be similar to Sasquatch or might be, you know, adjacent to it on a different evolutionary chain than the Homo sapiens or Nathandrials. I, I believe in that. I believe in science. So if you can f discover a new species, which biologists are doing almost daily, that kind of lines up with what we think Bigfoot is. 100% I'll believe. The problem is, I think a lot of people, if scientists were able to do that, Bigfoot sightings would still occur. I, I don't think the zeitgeist of humanity right now is ready to just accept, even if we did find Bigfoot evidence, that Bigfoot sightings would still happen. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think he's so ingrained in who we are. I mean, he's essentially a mascot now for Portland and Washington that to lose that mythos of him would hurt a lot of people. Yeah, it definitely sells a lot of t-shirts. Uh, how about you, Nathaniel? Do you believe in good old Biggie? I will say that I I don't necessarily believe in Bigfoot as it, as, you know, strictly interpreted by a lot of cryptozoologists. But I do think that there certainly is something out there that, you know, is warranting a lot of these interesting sightings. I find it extremely interesting and, and notable that there are Bigfoot-like things in almost every part of the world in terms of folklore. Sure. I don't think that that's a coincidence. And so I think that definitely there are some some species that are, you know, at least Bigfoot adjacent. Like like you said earlier, you know, it could be a type of bear, it could be whatever that is very elusive and you know, it could be all over the world even. I just don't think that, you know, even if we discovered what people think is Bigfoot, it, many people would recognize it as such. Sure. You know, just they're like, "Oh, hey, did you hear about that new bear?" and people people wouldn't necessarily be willing to make those connections, even if it was definitely what everyone keeps saying. So so I'll say I believe that it exists, but not like how other people think it does. <laughs> sure. And I think that is true of like extraterrestrials. I think there are extraterrestrials out there, but I don't think they are greys or lizard people probing us in the butts to try and figure out how we function as a species, you know? Let's talk about this fun movie called Willow Creek. Did you hear that? Hear what? That sounds like someone's crying. Hey! Ah! 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 
so Willow Creek uh, was written and directed by Bobcat Goldthwait back in 2013. Okay. Pause. I, I for sure thought his name was just Bob, but then I looked it up as I saw that note in our, our show notes, and his, his God-given name is Bobcat? His name is Robert Francis Bobcat Goldthwait. <laughs> okay, that makes more sense. I was very concerned about his childhood bullying for a minute. I mean, I would be surprised if it's a if it comes from you know his childhood uh, as as far as you know when when he got that nickname. But no, he he. Uh, so I, I was just curious because obviously with a name <laughs> like Bobcat Goldthwait, you have to look into this man. You have have almost certainly seen him in something, or at least heard his voice in something. Uh, so he is uh, an actor. Uh, has done some producing and directing, obviously. He has worked in television and film, and um, is mostly known for working in comedy. So, for example, in uh, Disney's Hercules, he is Pain. Oh. So, that was the big one for me. Um, but, I mean, you know, he's been in episodes of Community. He's been uh, in so many shows. Uh, I mean, like, stuff going back to the, you know, mid-80s. Uh, like One Crazy Summer, a bunch of the Police Academy movies, Eek the Cat. Holy cow, I didn't even remember that existed until just now. Apparently, at some point, he decided, hey, I'm going to make a horror movie. I didn't see uh, very many horror-related credits, but, um, you know, it sounds like he had an idea and, and went with it. So, yeah, Willow Creek is a found footage movie. Like I said, it was from 2013. And... Uh, let's let's kind of dig into uh, the plot summary. Do you want me to summarize that since you've been doing uh, the bulk of the, the talking this episode? <laughs> yeah, give us the plot and then maybe I'll give some trivia about the film that I found. Yes. Okay, so this is a very straightforward movie. Basically, we have a couple in their mid-20s to 30s, I don't know, you know, the, the vague, young, attractive couple. So, so we have Jim and Kelly. And Jim is a cryptid enthusiast, especially with all things Bigfoot slash Sasquatch. Uh, and so he is basically making a uh, documentary film that, you know, is the basis for all of this found footage, where he is, yeah, trying to, you know, see if he can obviously find one, or at the very least, you know, make a, a pilgrimage out to the Patterson-Gimlin film site. Which, as I mentioned when we were talking about the actual Patterson-Gimlin film, is kind of out in the middle of nowhere in the woods in Northern California. You know, the first part of the film was just them, you know, kind of going around town, filming by all of the fun Bigfoot statues, and there's like, you know, eating Bigfoot burgers, and all of that kind of fun stuff. Um, you know, they even like... And this is really fun, because if you've been to the Pacific Northwest, when I went to... Portland and Seattle. This is all over the place. One of my favorite pictures of me and my siblings is of this like twenty foot giant Bigfoot statue where we got Bigfoot burgers, and you know it's very part of their culture. It's definitely, you know, made a, a whole tourist industry out of it, especially you know right close to this you know iconic hoax film site. And so, you know, that that's the first major section of the film. Finally, they they actually go out into the woods. When they go out into the woods, initially they are. You know, there's some guy who tries to, like, you know, force them to leave because, of course, you always have some angry man yelling at people. And then, uh, but they end up taking a different route. They're getting, uh, you know, going through the woods. They're getting pretty close to the Patterson-Gimlin site. Then 
They set up camp for the night, and during the night they hear all of these weird sounds. Uh, specifically, wood knocking, which is something that you know people claim it is something that uh, Sasquatches do. Just you know, knock pieces of wood together loudly. Also, these like uh, whoop noises, you know, kind of like hooting at each other, and it freaks them out. And then finally, as as the night goes on, you know, something starts like poking at their tent, and you know, the the noises are much closer, and you know, it seems like a, some sort of creature is right there. They the next you know, as soon as it's light out, they pack up and they say, okay, well, we're out of here. That was too freaky. But then they end up getting lost, you know, go in a big circle. It starts getting dark again. And then uh, they start to be, you know, hear, hear the, the noises again and uh, are presumably being chased by something. You don't get to see it. And then end up in, in a patch of woods where they run into a half-naked woman who seems almost feral, and then they get dragged away and you hear screaming credits roll. Yeah, so before before we dive into pros and cons, let me just say that I, I think this is a very straightforward movie and we're probably not going to have a long discussion on the movie itself just because it is pretty A plus B equals C. Yeah. Um, but some fun facts about the movie is that Bobcat himself wanted to make a movie that was incredibly inspired by Blair Witch. Um, and he said a lot of times people try and reinvent the wheel when it comes to found footage Blair Witch project. And he doesn't like that. He wanted it to be as authentic to Blair Witch as possible, which I think he did pretty well. Yeah. Um, he called it Blair Squatch, <laughs> um, which I thought was humorous. I want a shirt that says Blair Squatch. And it's like Bigfoot in the position of the Blair Witch kind of um, fetishes that you see throughout the entire movie. Uh, but it kind of, I mean, Blair Witch, as good as it is, and the lore that was built up for it, the ending is very dissatisfying, and I think the same thing applies here. Um, and dissatisfying is probably not the right word for Blair Witch, because it is pretty scary throughout. Yeah, um, and I actually really like the ending when it comes to the Blair Witch, but this one, it's... It suffers. We'll, we'll, we'll get, yeah. Yeah. We'll um, get into it, but yeah. Another thing I thought that was really cool was the script was only about 20% of the dialogue that we see in the film. 80% of it was essentially improvised, which stunned me. Um, because one of our highest praises of the film is the acting felt very authentic and very real. Of course, this film, you know, is it Jim? I just spaced his name. Yeah, Jim is looking for the Patterson-Gimlin site. And so a lot of the lore that we learn about Bigfoot is rooted in the iconic film. Which is fun. I mean, I don't know if that's a fun fact, but it's just very apparent. Um, finally, though, my favorite trivia fact that I learned was at the end, when everyone is screaming and freaking out, people in the area thought something bad was happening and actually called the police. And so the police arrived on site, and there's this girl who's all emaciated, tied up, and, you know, these two characters who are obviously very emotional because they're trying to act, and the police got a laugh out of it. They thought it was awesome. So I thought that was really cool. <laughs> That's fantastic. All right, so we've kind of alluded to a few things. Um, really, uh, you and I both love found footage, and I think this one in particular just cap like captured me from this very get-go. I don't know what it is about found footage. I know we've had this discussion before, Nathaniel, but I just get so enthralled. I don't know. It just... I, I can't take my eyes off of it. <laughs> well, to, I, I think why found footage is effective is because found footage is 
taking away one layer of falseness between you and the film you're watching that's usually there. So it makes it feel more realistic, which makes it easier to get immersed in it. You know, it's easier to believe the story if it's presented in a way as though it were true. It's the same reason that, you know, a lot of times, you know, we can watch these ridiculous uh, shows on, I don't know, Sci-Fi Channel or whatever that are, you know, ghost hunting and stuff, because it's presented as though it's giving us something that is factual. It doesn't matter if it's real or not. It's, it's, it feels real. It has um, truthiness, to, to use uh, Stephen Colbert's word. And so, yeah, that, that makes us invest because it feels like we could be there with them. More so than the, the sheen and veneer that we usually get in the uh, more conventionally produced film. And I think when actors like what we see in Willow Creek are so authentic, so raw, and very relatable, it just draws you in even more. Uh, I have to give a huge shout out to Bryce Johnson, who played Jim, and especially to Lexi Gilmore, who played Kelly. Kelly, I thought, was the better performance because she had to play this incredulous but supportive you know, girlfriend slash fiance slash life partner. And her reactions and her dialogue was just so good and so believable. Yeah, I, I really, really liked their performances. I also like liked the performances of, of quite a few of the kind of just random people around town because they definitely like spoke true of just, you know, like the awkwardness of, oh, hey, this pe- person has a camera on. Okay, I guess I get to talk to the person. Talk to us about the bookstore guy. I love the bookstore guy. He is such a, like, like I don't know, he, he nailed it. Because they go to the Bigfoot bookstore and, you know, this guy just knows everything about Patterson Gimlin. He knows, you know, he, he has, uh, you know the same kind of camera that they used. He has a, a cast of a Bigfoot footprint. He has all of the knowledge, and he is so eager to talk about all of it, but he's also, like, super cringy and awkward in the most believable way. Like, he is an enthusiast to his core, but he does not usually have anyone who's willing to listen to him. And so, like, I don't know, just... We've met that guy. At some point, we've probably been that guy about some topic <laughs> or another. And so I just, I really liked him. I, you know, I also liked just some of the random people in the town of like, like, you know, the visitor center lady when he's just like, and uh, I want to know, do you believe in Bigfoot? No. Oh, um, well, uh, it, it, do, is there like evidence that, that could help convince you? Not really. <laughs> like like just like that that kind of thing was just perfect because you know he's expecting her to be this hard sell on oh yes we all believe in bigfoot around here no just i don't know i i i love that but uh, another thing i really loved you know going back to you know the, the main two characters is that their relationship felt authentic in a way that i don't often see in movies where like the you did see that they, like, cared about each other and they tried to support each other. But they also, like, had very, like, genuine, like, bickering and, you know, like... It, you, you believe that they had been a couple for a while and they, you know, did care about each other. But there were things that drove each other nuts. And, and they have to try to roll their eyes and laugh at each other and all that. And so, I don't know, like, it, 
it felt very real in a way that you don't usually see. It's usually too perfect or too fighting or whatever, and you're like, I don't believe it. Right. This 100% sold it to me. Yeah, and I you have a note listed that found footage is very smart for this topic, and I think this is rooted in the Patterson-Gimlin film. I think Bigfoot movies excel in found footage because we are so kind of indoctrinated with the Patterson-Gimlin film that this feels right. This is the type of movie that Bigfoot should star in. Um, I want to talk about the scene, though, that terrified the pants off of me, Nathaniel. Yes. The pants off of me. Um, there is a scene that's towards the end where Jim and Kelly are kind of sleeping in this tent and where they start to hear the rocks clattering against each other and the whoops and then the, the tent gets pushed. This is a single shot scene, uh, so there are no cuts whatsoever. I don't know the technical term. We have guests that probably can speak better to this than I can. This scene was harrowing to me. I am an avid camper. My family goes camping every single year. A lot of what happened in the scene with this couple, you know, being quiet for, you know, two or three minutes on camera, and then you hear this innocuous noise that could be a host of anything. But, you know, you're in the wilderness, you're alone, it's dark, you don't have modern technology, your brain runs 150 miles an hour, and you think of the worst possible scenario. It blew my mind. It, it, this movie is not perfect. It's not fantastic. This scene, though, oh, it yeah. gets me. It gets me so bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I 1 million percent agree. I think that this film is worth watching just for this scene. Agree. A thousand percent agree. Because, yeah, it, it, it sells this so well. Yeah, I, I would say that a lot of found footage definitely suffers from constantly cutting away, cutting away, cutting away. And even, like, parts of this film suffer from that, especially just even a little bit later in the film. But right here, yeah, the, the commitment to one very long take, and it's, like, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes long? Like, it's... It's eight, it, it, 18 minutes long. 18 minutes of this entire 18 film. 18 minutes. Yeah, wow. I timed it. Yeah, and, and it just lets you stew in it. And, yeah, at first, it's just weird noises in the woods, and them just going like, oh, I'll just go back to sleep. Yeah, I don't know, it could be a bird, it could be a, I don't know, I don't, it could be anything. It could be a person just dicking around. But it lets you just sit there, and there are long pauses where they're just looking freaked out, just sitting in the tent. And, yeah, you don't really see anything. You just see, at one point, you know, you hear some grunting and something is pushing on the... Uh, the tent is, is, you know, the height of the action. But just, you know, hearing the crunches of walking around and the whoop, whoop noises and all of that. You know, at, at a certain point, like, I think, I don't know, a minute in, I was like, are, are they seriously not going to cut to, like, when some action starts? But then by the end of it, I was like, I love that scene, and I'm glad that they let me just sit in the awkwardness and the creepiness and all of that for because as long as they did. We've all been there. We've all sat mm. in that same kind of horror. And for it to last that long in a horror movie, it, you almost have to have a degree of patience to get through it. But you're also on the edge of your seat because it's just so real and scary. And when I tell people about Willow Creek, I talk about this moment because the rest of the film to me doesn't quite matter because this scene is so damn good. And it, it perfectly encapsulates why I don't really like uh, camping very much. 
Because even even on the most innocuous camping trip, there's at least five minutes of that that you experience at every some point single, in the night. Every single camping trip. Last last year, I went by myself. I had an entire tent to myself, and I watched one of the new Unexplained Mysteries about UFO sightings. And that was probably not my best decision, because I was up the rest of the night thinking, Oh my gosh, what was that leaf rustle? Was that a gray coming to get me? All right. Uh, well, so so now that we've talked about the highlight of the film, should we switch over to the ending and maybe where it kind of falls apart a little bit? Yeah, and I think this film is kind of encapsulated in three parts. You have the build-up in the beginning, third, and then you have the middle part, which is essentially the tent scene, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that tent scene, the movie kind of plummets into a spiral of just weirdness. A lot of it worked for me, but there were things that didn't. Um Okay, so as I referenced, uh, it kind of throws us some interesting curveballs uh, at the end of the movie, specifically that there's just like this like random like half-naked lady just like screaming and looking frantic in the woods and suddenly they're getting dragged away. So two big problems. The first one is really, if this is a Bigfoot movie, and it, it, and it clearly is from frame one, you're, the, the promise that you're making to the audience is that we're going to see... Bigfoot. We're gonna see a Sasquatch. It doesn't, and 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 to me, that doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be, you know, some huge crazy reveal. But I want to see I don't know, at least like some teeth and claws or something. I don't know something. But yeah, the closest we ever get is some hair and some footprints and some noises and screaming uh, from from the the characters in reaction to it. But yeah, but we never see anything. You know, and especially also all of these references to the Patterson-Gimlin one. I'm sorry, that sh- that that film showed us Bigfoot. That's why it's famous. And so I needed to see Bigfoot. It just needed to be a small second. It, it could be seven seconds of Bigfoot. I would have been happy. But we never do. And that's that's a big promise that they made me that was broken. If this film was inspired by such an iconic Bigfoot lore film, we had to have at least gotten that moment where we see something. Um, it, it did a real disservice, I think, and I know Bobcat was trying to do a Blair Witch kind of a thing with it, but in the Blair Witch Project, we end with something. And this movie, we end with really nothing other than screaming and kind of this disoriented, drunken revel of a few flashes of some you know kidnapped girl i I don't know it was bizarre and and i got a little confused too and you and i exchanged some text messages about this because jim and kelly seem to have gotten lost but also there was this weird kind of undertone of maybe they were losing time somehow or just going in this giant circle Um, but they were so authentic up to that point i didn't think the circle idea was very plausible uh, uh, I, I mean, when people get lost in the woods, going in a big circle is something that, that does happen to a lot of people. Right, but they just seemed smarter to me than that up to that point, you know? Like, they had prepared for this. This was Jim's dream. you think he would have at least gotten his orientation merit badge. Yeah, yeah, that was the problem I had, was, was that, like, at no point at, at all do they just, like, bust out a compass. He just, like, knows where to go. And, I don't know... I just don't think that they would have gotten as far as they did into the woods without at some point going, so do you have a map? Do you have a compass? Do you have GPS? Anything? I mean, this is 2013. Like, you gotta have something. And then, like you mentioned, towards the end, we see this woman who we saw earlier that had been kidnapped and she's tied up and, you know, nude 
which I just felt was weird. And at the end of the day, you could make an argument that Bigfoot was never even the cause of any of this, that it was this, you know, it could be crazy psychopaths in the forest or, you know, a serial killer. It could be a host of things. From the research I was able to do about the film, it seems like, you know, the, the general interpretation is kind of pulling from some things in Bigfoot lore where people say, oh, they'll take human brides or something. You know, they'll kidnap women and, you know, make them do unspeakable things and to, to continue their progeny or whatever. And, and you know, the, and uh, there is, like, a little hint about this woman missing, but, you know, I was talking about a lot of people missing, and they, like, made some, like, stupid jokes about this woman's missing poster at some point earlier in the film. Like, I didn't realize it was her... They should have maybe, I don't know, made that scene a little bit more meaningful or, you know, showed me her more clearly or, I don't know, just made it more obvious that that, that was who that was. But also, yeah, like, when we have this this kind of weird misdirect of this, you know, angry guy who yells at them to get out of the area and go back to town, go back to town, and it's just being a total a-hole. Yeah, there was no context there. Like, why? what was he doing? Were they on private property? Was he related to this Bigfoot phenomenon? Yeah, if, if he even gave any reason whatsoever, then, then I think it would have made more sense. But yeah, like, at the end of the day, I was like, am I supposed to interpret this that Bigfoot kidnapped this woman? Or that she was lost in the woods and is just also tramping through the woods? Or maybe she's been kidnapped by this angry man or some associates of this angry man and they're just trying to keep people out of the area so no one knows what they're doing. How am I supposed to interpret this? Are they just using, yeah, like, and, and like, I think maybe that's the point is for me to interpret this a hundred different ways and go, oh, I just don't know what to believe. It didn't do it the right way. I mean, I think Midsummer does that in some regard. You know, is it paranormal? Is it just drugs? Is it this weird cult? Like, it, it allows you to take this plot and interpret it your own way. But, but Willow Creek was about Bigfoot. There was no question about that until the last 20 minutes of the film. So it, it left you feeling like, wait, what the hell? What was this movie really about then? And, and again, just going back to the fact that, yeah, if you're going to promise me Bigfoot, I have to see Bigfoot. Yeah. Or I have to see clear evidence of, of the contrary. And I think that is the biggest knife in this movie, is is that right there. It is Willow Creek, the content is about Bigfoot, and at the end of the day, we got little Bigfoot. We got some whoops and some rocks, and a tent that rattled. It it just, I mean, like, even at, like, I don't know, it's just such a shame that, like, if the movie had ended with the tent scene, if suddenly it had torn through and just ripped them apart, roll credits, would have loved it. Agreed. Would have no problems. Absolutely. I would have been like 100% sold. That was a great movie. Does not matter if it was ridiculous. And even if I got a good look at Bigfoot, if I saw some Bigfoot claws, yep, I would have been like, yep, great movie. Recommend it. Everyone should go see this movie. All right, let's 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 rate it. Because really, the ending kind of slammed the movie into the ground. So, Screams, what would you give it, Daniel? Uh, I would give it a four, and all four of those are basically just for that tendency. I gave it a five, just because I've encountered that situation so many times. Um, I remember being little, and my grandfather telling us this crazy story of this animal he heard walking on two legs, and then when he kind of yelled at it, it ran away on four legs. And I think about that every time I sleep in a tent now, and 
just that tense scene just will stay with me always forever when I can. So again, a, a five. It was intense. Oh! Ah! Um, you get ten crowns for that pun, Nathaniel. Aww. Um, but this movie only gets 6.5 from me. Yeah, I gave it a 6. The ending, had the ending been better, it probably would have boosted up to an 8. Yeah, um, same. Uh, it, that ending kind of, as Nathaniel famously says, crapped the bed. Alright, do you, you have a little quick studying the strange you'd like to share? Yeah, this is also a segment I have not done in a while. Um, So... I just wanted to briefly highlight a Sasquatch-related uh, horror novel I read recently. Uh, it came out last year uh, by Max Brooks, uh, who is most famous for his zombie-related books, uh, World War Z and the Zombie Survival Guide. So, by the way, fun fact about Max Brooks, he is Mel Brooks' son. Yes, the Mel Brooks of, uh, you know, the producers and Spaceballs and... So freaking many other parody kind of films, fame. Yeah, this is his son. Um, but the the book I'm talking about today is Devolution, a first-hand account of the Rainier Sasquatch Massacre. This is in the uh, area around Mount, uh, Mount Rainier, Washington. Basically, the idea is there's this like small, like super smart community, like you know. Six smart homes, everything is powered by sunlight, everything is, you know, there are delivery drones, everything is just, you know, super amazing. There is an eruption of uh, Mount Rainier, which then fills the sky with ash, which then, like, makes it so all of their technology doesn't work. So they're waiting for people to rescue them, and suddenly, like, a bunch of Sasquatches show up and just murder everybody. It's a fun book. It's... Like, did it did it reinvent the wheel? No. Um, it's it's written mostly through uh, journal entries of one of the characters, which felt very similar to World War Z in terms of the, the style it was written in. Or I guess if you're familiar with World War Z because of the movie, this is not anything like that. The the book World War Z tells the story of a zombie war through uh, a bunch of different people's uh, experiences. You know, everything from soldiers to some, you know, shut-in kid in Japan to a bunch of other people. Uh, it's it's actually a really fantastic book. And, by the way, also really, really good on audiobook because it has, like, a full cast, and it's it's great. You know, this one, it, it felt like he was trying to replicate kind of what he did with World War Z, but apply it to Sasquatches. But the problem was that a lot of the book does focus so much on, like, explaining how the smart homes work. And kind of trying to, like, really show the difference between the primitive, you know, the Sasquatches versus the, like, super advanced, this smart home community. That I, I felt like it, uh, the the Sasquatch mayhem ended up just not being the highlight of the book in a lot of ways. But it's fun. Like, it's definitely worth a quick read. I would say, you know, if if you're in the mood for a quick kind of light horror novel it's it's definitely worth picking up but it's not one to rush out and you know definitely have to grab you know just get it from the library or something yeah devolution by max brooks um it, it sounds similar to a hulu documentary that i've kind of watched called sasquatch about how um there's a sasquatch who murdered this weed farmer 
I don't know. It sounds like the person who created this this documentary was also a little bit high, but you know, it, it sounds similar in some regard. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Nathaniel, how are you staying spooky other than reading this fantastic book about Bigfoot? So uh, lately, I have been, I'll say, staying spooky adjacent, in that uh, because HBO had. The new Godzilla vs. Kong movie, I was like, well, you know, I, I, I definitely want to watch that, because that sounds like my kind of jam. And so I decided to watch all of the related movies that I hadn't seen, which was all of them except for the first uh, Godzilla movie in that series. So, so you know, so there's, yeah, Godzilla, Godzilla King of the Monsters, Kong Skull Island, and then Godzilla vs. Kong. I had seen the Godzilla one in theaters when it had first came out and hated it, but I was like, what? I mean, these other ones look like they could be better, and I've heard more positive things about them. So yeah, I watched Kong Skull Island. It was okay. I watched Godzilla King of the Monsters. It was okay, I guess. And then I watched Godzilla vs. Kong, and it was not good. Yeah, it was, was not worth all of that buildup. Really, the highlight of all that whole thing was just me watching Mothra... Wrexham Fools, that, that was a good time, and Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Mothra. But other than that, do not really recommend this whole batch of kaiju movies. I would just say stick with the Japanese ones. Mothra always and forever will remind me of Mothman. Yeah, maybe that's why I love Mothra so much, I don't know. Mothra is the best kaiju, and I will fight anyone who says otherwise, even though I have no real basis for this argument. Um, I agree, Mothman, er, sorry. Mothra is the best. <laughs> See what I did there? I've been staying spooky with a slew of terrible horror movies. Uh, me and my boyfriend wanted to watch a horror movie the other night, and he saw a good-looking dude in one of his other favorite TV shows and was like, yeah, we gotta watch that one. It was not good. It was based on the Smiley Face Killers. Do not watch this movie. It's hot garbage. What uh, is it called? Smiley Face Killers. It's, it's all about this kind of serial killer conspiracy theory of there's this syndicate of of killers who are killing um college-aged boys and then leaving a smiley face in the crime scene um if you even give it five minutes of research it falls apart real fast the other movie though that i was very disappointed in was called honeydew it was directed by the son of steven spielberg who is one of my cinematic heroes um sawyer spielberg I was very excited for this movie. The trailer made it look very kind of that artistic horror that you and I love so much. Um, very semblant of St. Maud or Midsummer, Hereditary, and I was stoked for it. And it was rough. Artistically and cinematically, it was very beautiful, but the plot just made zero sense. And it was just, it was trying too hard to be artistic, I think. So hopefully our sweet little baby Sawyer Spielberg can try again and do something a little bit better, in my opinion. So he was an actor in it, right? Correct, yeah. He starred in it, and then he also directed. Uh, I've seen a director is listed as someone else on IMDb. Devereaux Milburn. Oh my gosh, maybe I have it backwards. Thank you for fact-checking there. Oh yeah, and no, I was just looking it up to see what the heck it is, because I hadn't even ever heard of it, so... Yeah, it's about this, like, wheat fungus called Sorbico, but then turns into this weird pseudo-religion kind of ma and pa. I don't know, it felt like an homage to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, but did it in a very not great way. Well, I think this is an incredible episode, and again, if you 
are a Bigfoot enthusiast and you have some amazing evidence or amazing stories or just disagree with us, please let us know. We'd love to interact with you. Yes, please. Yeah, message us on uh, Twitter, uh, Facebook. I I might see it if you message us on Facebook, though uh, it's not the strongest way to connect with us. Shoot us an email, you know, just whatever. All of our contact information's on our website, so... You know, ScreamKingsPodcast.com. Stay spooky, friends. Stay spooky. Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at ScreamKingsPod. You could also email us at ScreamKingsPodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You can also support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash Scream Kings. Stay spooky.